What number is this, Chip? Episode 29. Interview with Bobby Hart and his book, Psychedelic Bubblegum. <laughs> okay, not mean like, don't get excited, man. It's because I'm short. I'm You're listening to Zilch, a monkey's podcast. Today on Zilch, we welcome something that's a bit of a bucket list interview for us here. Today, we are joined by Bobby Hart. I hope you enjoy this interview. It was a blast to do. Let's take it away. From the man who wrote the songs that outsold the Beatles and the Rolling Stones in 1967 and 1968 comes the story of the first decades of his life in Hollywood, New York. The new book, Psychedelic Bubblegum, Voice and Heart, The Monkeys, and Turning Mayhem into Miracles. Available May 12, 2015. Immerse yourself in Grammy, Golden Globe, and Academy Award-nominated songwriter Bobby Hart's world. As half of the duo of Boyce and Hart, he and his partner, Tommy Boyce, wrote the songs that launched the Monkees to stardom and eventually reaching over 100 million in sales. Psychedelic Bubblegum is a roller coaster ride through the 60s and 70s during America's whirlwind era of free speech, mysticism, psychedelic pop culture, and of course, rock and roll. If you're into the 60s and 70s pop, Psychedelic Bubblegum is a must-read book. Written by Bobby Hart with Glenn Ballantyne and a foreword by Mickey Dolenz. Find Bobby Hart at Facebook, go to the Psychedelic Bubblegum Facebook page, and go to bobbyhart.com for full details. Hey, this is Bobby Hart, and you're listening to Zilch, a monkey's podcast. You're a professional. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, on the other end of this phone is the man who helped write the songs that outsold the Beatles and the Rolling Stones in 1967 and 1968. Bobby Hart, welcome to Zilch. Hey, Ken. Thanks. Uh, it's not nice to be here. It's nice to be anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> We made a list of people that we wanted to have on the show, and you were definitely right up there. And uh, it's it's almost impossible to talk about the monkeys without talking about Bobby Hart. The contributions that you made are just absolutely amazing. Take a look at what was it, thirty songs you guys wrote for the monkeys? Uh, for the monkeys, I, yeah, something around that area, I guess. I haven't counted them lately. <laughs> but we had, uh, I believe that. I believe I have songs in every Monkey album except for the soundtrack to, to the movie Head, <laughs> and uh, and the one the one album that they did later on for Rhino that was called Just Us, which they had they wrote everything. Well, we're here today to let folks know about your new book, Psychedelic Bubblegum, and it's available at Amazon.com and Barnes and Noble. And if people buy now, what do they get, Bobby? They get a little bonus. They're offering a free download of a uh, previously unreleased uh, Bobby Hart song. Uh, it's called Not Today. It's one of the songs from uh, a musical play that uh, I wrote a few years ago with some partners. And uh, But this is pre-order. The actual, it'll be in stores uh, um, on the 12th of May. But you can pre-order now. Uh, that's cool. If you go to my website, bobbyhart.com, figure out how to get that free download. So you can go to bobbyhart.com, and there are details, and we'll post those in our show links as well. Cool. So, Bobby, what is the book, Psychedelic Bubblegum, all about? Well, it's a story of my life. Uh, it's something I've been wanting to do for a long time and fiddling around with uh, for years, and uh, finally got together with an old friend of mine and 
asked him if he would help me do it. It was Glenn Ballantyne, and he runs an, an ad agency and a, a media company. <clears throat> and uh, I was pretty good with words, and uh, I used to get A's in my English papers, too, in school. So <laughs> we, we came up with something we were pretty proud of. We worked a long time on it, but uh, <clears throat> it's a story of my life. Uh, but it's also it's a lot of the music stuff that, that you've been talking about, about all the monkey stories and all the other all the other songs that we wrote for people from <clears throat> Linda Ronstadt to uh, you know, Dean Martin or whatever you whatever's in between. And uh, funny stories of the Boys and Heart days and the Monkeys days. But it's also a spiritual journey. It's like how I changed over the years and what what were some of the things that I've looking back now, easy to see for me, what helped me, what 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 pushed me along towards success, what were the stumbling blocks that I've, I've look back and say well I could have done that better so it's uh, it's it's all about me <laughs> and, uh, and it was really a lot of fun doing in your book psychedelic bubblegum you talk about dealing with some of the processes of kind of being rejected at times could you talk about that because that's a very important thing for people that are very creative they will eventually face that and, and, and you and Tommy faced that because sometimes people just wanted your songs and not necessarily you guys. Could you could you address that? Well, we, Tommy and I both wanted to be singers. That's why uh, that's why I came to Hollywood at 18 years old and uh, and uh, and started uh, trying to figure out how somebody would sign me to a record label. <laughs> Interesting story because I had a record deal within uh, I think about four months of, of landing here came here with 50 bucks in my pocket and, a, and an army duffel bag and uh, I got a job printing record labels and started making demos and somebody signed me within about four months but that didn't mean I had a hit I mean, it meant that I lost my print shop job going on tour for trying to promote the record and then came back and had, had no job <clears throat> no money to support a family with as I'd gotten married and starting to have kids by then so it was a struggle for the first six years, but they were priceless years because that's when I was learning my craft. I only started writing songs because that first guy that signed me said, uh, well, I like your sound, but we're only signing people that have their own material. Go home and write some songs. So he said it, and I did it, not knowing any better, but knowing that they were, they were probably terrible songs, but it worked to get me the deal. And uh, probably some of the best advice I say in the book uh, that I ever got, because the value of creating something from out of nothing, it has tremendous value because it's not just dependent on others for your success. So Tommy and I, touching on what you just asked, uh, long, long question for a short answer, long answer for a short question. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we did want to be singers, and that's what we were looking for that whole time. Um, but it turned out later on that we needed to pair up with each other for that to happen. I find it amazing that you had no idea that you were a songwriter until you basically were forced into it. Yeah, <laughs> no. I, uh, I wasn't a songwriter, but I knew I wanted to be a singer. And he said, do this and come back. So I did. And he signed me. He, 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 uh, he signed me as though I had hit the jackpot with my mediocre songs, but uh, looking back, I don't think they were very good, but uh, it got the, got the deal done. 
But that's I, just I, a great lesson do, to learn yeah. in life, you know, that uh, you really don't know what you're capable of until you try it. That's a very good point, isn't it? And, and you were talking about a minute ago about uh, disappointments and setbacks, and uh, and, you, and you're right that everybody who is creative is going to find rejection along the way. That's just part of the deal. If you're a songwriter, of course, if you write 100 songs, you're lucky if you get 10 of them recorded. Uh, later on, it was a little better ratio, but in the beginning, getting a song recorded was a big deal. Uh-huh. And uh, and then, of course, we had big rejection uh, even after we started the Monkeys Project, which we'll probably talk about in a minute. You were from a small town? Well, I came from Phoenix, Arizona, okay. which was kind of a sleepy little town in those days, talking about the 50s still. Yeah. It was, uh, it was a country music town, the number one station, radio station was Wade Country. And that, that suited me fine because I uh, wasn't really into what they were calling popular music at the time. They had, the, they had those uh, Sinatra kind of uh-huh. artists, and I didn't feel like there was much feeling in those kinds of records. And so I listened to country until rock and roll came in. And when Elvis hit, of course, our country station was the first one to play Elvis and Gene Benson, those guys. People don't realize what a transition that was when when Elvis really made it because you had the rhythm and blues artists that were like on the one station and then you had the country on another station and then as yeah. you say what was considered pop at the time when Elvis hit it was like seeing you know the the movie Wizard of Oz where it goes from being black and white to color all of a sudden there was a whole new set of options That's a good analogy it's true it uh we felt it that way because we were, you know, when Elvis came, I guess I was in probably uh, 11th, maybe 10th grade, and uh, that was just something for the, for, you know, just it just hit us in, in the heart. I mean, I, I loved Elvis as much as all the girls in my class and uh, got uh-huh. to see him at the Arizona State Fairgrounds when he just had his first RCA records out, 50, probably 50, 55 or 56, and wow. it did change everything. You're right about the segregation of music before that, the pigeonholing of it, and it was so great that you could turn on, uh, they didn't call it Top 40 at that time, but you uh-huh. could turn on a station and at that and start to hear, start to hear uh, rockabilly and and East Coast doo-wop and R&B and, and still some of the old pop stuff. But the, the old pop stuff now is all changing. You, then you have people like, Dean Martin and Andy Williams starting to try to do uh, rock and roll songs, which worked for them for a while too. <laughs> and Pat Boone, let's let's not Pat forget Boone, that. Yeah. <laughs> they had a fortune uh, covering Little Richard. So, how did you wind up hooking up with Tommy Boyce? Well, as I say, I came out at eighteen. Uh, I, uh, I I got a you know, cut a record for Jesse Hodges, a producer that was doing pretty good out here at the time. I, I met uh, Tommy in his recording studio when he was doing a demo for Jesse. Just went stopped in to see my my uh, record producer, and, and Tommy was singing to me in the studio. So uh, we kind of became friends. Uh, it was you know it's a, it's a longer story. I one of my friends from from high school had come up to visit my wife and myself on the weekend, and he brought uh, his friend whose name was Curtis Lee. And he said, you know, now that you got a record deal, can you help my, my buddy? He sings pretty good. So they were both going to Pasadena College over here, so they'd come visit on the weekends. So I took Kurt down to meet Jesse, and that's where we all met uh, 
met Tommy. He did he did do a record with with Kurt and started him off on a career and and Tommy and Kurt became good friends and so we would all, all of us would see each other on the weekends. So Tommy is still living at home in Highland Park, a suburb of L.A., uh -huh. with his folks. But he would come up on the weekend and and we'd hang out. What was your first success as a songwriter? Well, it's all relative, isn't it? I I guess. I could go back to say the first song I wrote was a success because I got myself to do it. Uh -huh. <laughs> it wasn't. I know you're talking about commercial success. Uh, the first actual chart record I had was a record, a, a song I wrote called Doctor Heartache, that Tommy Sands recorded around 1960, 61 or so, 61, 62. But it only hit uh, into the 90s and fell off the charts, and I didn't have anything else. Until Tommy and I teamed up writing, uh, and I moved back to join him in New York, and we had our first uh, top 40 record with uh, Chubby Checker called Lazy Elsie Molly, uh -huh. 63, 64, I guess. Outside of the Monkees, who were some of your favorite singers and musicians to work with, or that you wrote songs for, or that covered your songs? Oh, a lot of a lot of great artists covered our songs. You know, I love Eric Burden of the Animals. I love the Raiders. I love uh, well, it was it was a thrill to have Andy Williams uh, when he got uh, I Want to Be Free. Uh -huh. To have an uh, artist of that stature cut your song is always a thrill. And we were getting we were getting cuts from places that we, you wouldn't expect. Like uh, as I said, growing up in country music, I was a fan of Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs, kind of the fathers of bluegrass music. And, when they cut Clarksville, I mean, that was unbelievable. Absolutely. So Ronstadt is, a, is one of my heroes as well. You had a, a great blessing in the artist that covered Hurt So Bad. We did, we did. I mean, that, that song by itself is just amazing. I don't think I've ever heard a bad version of that. And uh, Linda Ronstadt, she really took it to a whole new level again in the 70s. Who You know, who would have thought? nailed it, didn't she? Absolutely. One of the few songs, maybe the only, I'm not sure of this, but uh, songs that were recorded, that they went top ten three different times by three different artists in three different decades. And those yeah, artists were? Little Anthony had the original record in 1965, and then it was covered by The Letterman, and it went top ten again uh -huh. in 1970, and then under Ronstadt in 1980. That song uh, probably helped pay for a car or two. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was very nice to, to you know I wrote it with two other people, Teddy Rondazzo, the great Teddy Rondazzo who who produced uh, the original Little Anthony record, and he was a tremendous arranger and, and producer, and uh, he was a mentor of mine. I worked as a background singer for him for a couple of years in Vegas and other places around the world. Well, I'm going to play a small clip of some of your greatest hits that maybe a lot of people don't even realize that you wrote some of these songs. No. 
such a great diverse selection of music and artists it's just it's absolutely amazing to think of the diversity of people who picked up on your talent it's got to be mind-blowing to look back at this over your life and see what all where where your music has went it's definitely heartwarming and makes makes one feel fortunate and I I think only with with the writing of the book, have I really kind of analyzed it? I always just felt, well, I was in the right place at the right time. But looking back, I can kind of see, as I alluded to earlier, that there were certain things that I was doing. Like I, like I said, paying my dues for six years without hits, but just keeping on going with my day job and supporting my family, but not giving up on my dream, not getting frustrated and you know, everybody gets frustrated once in a while, but not, uh-huh. not getting uh, angry at setbacks, not blaming others, you know, not becoming bitter or disillusioned. I do feel like a part of what I wanted to do in the book was to give, give back a little bit to others and try to share some of the things I identified in the process of writing. You're kind of at a stage in your life where you want to kind of pass on this knowledge to people that that are going to face some of the same situations that you and Tommy and every creative artist uh, or, or business person even has to face. Like, for example, it's one thing to be ready for opportunity, and it's another thing to be ready when that opportunity hits. It's it's kind of like a combination of the two things. Yeah, my, my friend told me something his father said. He mentioned this to me yesterday. Uh, his late father had told him, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Isn't that a good one? <laughs> it's a, but it's true. It's absolutely true. Because it's true. you got to be ready for your opportunities. And uh, part of being ready is not only paying your dues and honing your craft, but uh, your attitude toward life and, and how you're allowing success to come to you 
that sometimes we, we have all these blockages and barriers that we don't even know that we're putting up that keep good things from coming to us. So I had to kind of go through some of that. And and uh, also the, the luck to me came in the form of spiritual mentors who came along and gave me tips. You know, like somebody said, read this book called Psycho-Cybernetics. It's about, it's about visualizing what you want and, and uh, making a making a discipline of doing this every morning and, and vividly seeing what you want and that that was one of the one of the big ones I think for me in the beginning to help get rid of the things that were maybe keeping big success at bay uh-huh. a small success already but to visualize what you want kind of it's a strange thing but it's a way of telling the universe yes this, I'm, I'm open and, and, and ready for to receive this and, that was one of the big ones for me, and then there were a lot of others as I learned to, as I, as I got more interested in uh, Eastern uh, mysticism and, and meditation and learning some of the other techniques that really got me through. So I talk about all this in the book, and plenty of stuff uh, for the music fans, but there's also some things in there for anybody who wants to improve themselves and to succeed. Well, it really goes hand in hand. There's the, the the musical side of it, but then there's the how to get to the musical side of it in a sense, because you kind of had to open yourself up to what was out there. Yeah. And make sure to receive the positive and make it happen. Yeah. And a part, you know, part of opening yourself up to what was out there, of course, is learning to write in all different genres. We uh, we we had, you know, I always said songwriting business a record producing business what what other business is there that you can just turn on the radio and see oh this is what it, this is what the kids are digging today you know uh-huh. and you could just learn from in those days we would we would never miss the re, scanning the billboard magazine chart and we would we'd be familiar with every one of the top hundred and we'd actually analyze, well, what made this a hit? Well, this is a an electric sitar. Well, that's cool. And then we'll use that on something, you know? Uh-huh. So we just constantly had input or instant feedback. You didn't have to do surveys or, you know, Billboard was doing it for you. And so we kind of became, a, we often said, Tommy and I, that we were like short order cooks. <laughs> okay, we need a we need song for... Uh, Herman's Hermits uh, needed by next week. And we we kind of already knew what the kind of material uh, that he would cut and the kind of thing he was having success with. And we did the same thing with television shows and, and movies. and uh, Just having that information made it so much easier that you could just, you could just, you know, kind of understand the parameters that each artist uh, was using and write something within that and get it to him within, within a few hours. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, it's amazing because even in the, the framework of the music that you did for the monkeys, that same diversity and looking at the charts, that, that, that same diversity found its way even into the songs that you wrote just for the monkeys. I yeah, mean, you take a look true. at something like... Uh, you know, I want to be free, Valerie, and you know, and on and on and on. The the list is. It's but there's so many different kinds of music that you guys straddled. Yeah, that's true. Uh, part of that was that we had two two really we had four four great musicians, but two, two really uh, 
phenomenal lead singers with Nikki and Davey, and they were different, and we wrote differently for each of them. And when we had a song that didn't seem to fit uh, anything they'd done before, one of them would be able to tackle it. Now, when you first heard Mickey Dolenz, were you aware of what he was capable of? Well, our, our very first situation, I'll tell you that story later, but the first time that we actually worked together in the studio and, and made a record that, we, that was released, we were blown away with Mickey's sound, and we, we just knew we'd hit the jackpot with both he and Baby. Baby had that little uh, English... Uh, British invasion kind of thing mm-hmm. that was so familiar at that particular moment in time, and yet he didn't sound like the Beatles or anybody else. And that he, that was just one genre. And then and Mickey could do this little harder rock stuff, and uh, just one of the great pop voices of the of the period. Well, of the 20th century. I mean, it's just yeah. absolutely mind blowing. And they were it's both. True. He says, still sounds great. And the last time I heard him was a couple of years ago. Sounded good. Yeah, there's not many artists that can continue to keep their range, and he has done very well. Yeah. Out of all the songs that you wrote for the Monkees, of which of those songs are you the most proud of? You know, it's hard to hard to pick just one. Uh, I'm proud of a whole lot of them. Uh, I probably, I want to be free. Maybe stands out because it was cut by so many people, and also because. Uh, one of the few songs that Tommy and I didn't write as short order cooks. We just felt like writing a song one night and, and it kind of came out. Um, now, there, the, there are the two different versions that were done. There was the fast version and the slower yeah. version. Did you have a preference for how you wanted it to be? Oh, yeah, we wrote it as a ballad, but uh, I think the fast version was something to do with the pilot show. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was something that was needed for television not meant to be the, uh, the hit version it's interesting now because all this stuff is being put out by Rhino yeah and it's fantastic and it keeps your music alive and fresh and in front of new ears all the time when you wrote I Want to Be Free as a Ballad like for example that could have went along the thoughts of like a yesterday mm-hmm. was there any of that kind of thinking like we need something like this and then yes, you would... there, there was. We, uh, when we got, you know, when we, after we had hits in New York, Tommy and I, Tommy got signed actually to Screen Gems Columbia Music and sent back to the West Coast, and I got off the road uh, a few months later and joined him. Uh-huh. And so we were sent out all the time to do uh, uh, different projects uh, for television and for movies, and one of them was the producers who want to do a, a show about four unsuccessful musicians. Uh, so in that first meeting, uh, Bert Schneider told us, well, we want to do uh, American Beatles on television. So that was basically the, what, they, what they were envisioning. Uh-huh. And we thought, wow, what a great idea. You have, a, you have television every week uh, exposing records. That's, we knew what happened when Ricky Nelson sang his first song on Ozzy and Harriet and became a big artist. So we were totally excited by it and convinced Bert that day that we were the guys to do it for him. And uh, so we've spent that most of the year uh, before they actually cut the pilot, figuring out what what this sound should be, what the, how this opportunity could be uh-huh. taken advantage of. And uh, we knew we didn't want to do 
even though they said American Beatles, we didn't want to just, didn't want to get too close to that because that could have been disaster. There was that influence, but we also had a yellow pad full of other artists that we thought uh, could be influential in our shaping a sound for a new group. And uh, we did put a lot of thought into it. And we put a lot of thought into when, you know, they asked us to write three songs for the pilot show, and one of them was the theme. It seems like a funny little strange theme song, but we we packed it with with lines that that uh, we knew that the production team at the television studio wanted to get across. One was that this is a non-threatening group because it'd be the first time we'd have long-haired people on television, and their show was probably the first time that there was you had kids like that without any supervision. They were just on their own, getting mm -hmm. in trouble on their own, getting out of it. So we talked about, uh, you know, we don't want to put anybody down. Yeah, to too busy singing to put anybody yeah. down. So, <laughs> and then we talked about, but you know, we're deep, deeper than that. We got something to say to new generation now. You know, we got, we have a philosophy too. Uh huh. And uh, there was a whole whole philosophical discussion before we wrote that song, even though it went pretty quickly. But yeah, we did, we did work a long time on it only to have the rug pulled out of, from under us once the show had been sold uh donnie kirshner who was a big boss the new york guy who hadn't been part of this whole year of, of working with the, the television team tommy and me then he finally flies out and tells us uh, well i know uh, bert said that you could produce the records but you can't because you don't have a track record as producers you've written hits as writers but it's too big a deal now and it's been sold and it's on the air. It's going to be going on the air. Got to get guys with with uh, who've done this before. So that was we were talking about disappointments and setbacks and and rejection. That was one of the biggest, I would say. We didn't give up on. It. Yeah, well, we we uh, we were devastated, but we stayed. We just got ourselves out of it quickly. We said let's let's get back into positive mode. Bert and Bob knows that. What the money, the uh, <clears throat> the time that we put in on this, and they know that they had promised this to us, and uh, you know, I, we still think we deserve this. So the story was that uh, Donnie did. He tried at least three, at least three uh, teams of successful record producers that were hot at the time, uh -huh. and didn't like any of the results of any of it. And we were getting now down to only a month or two or three before the show was going on the air with no no record in the can. So we seized the opportunity at that point. Uh, got a meeting with Donnie and we said, "Look, here's the deal. Let us take Bobby's band because I was working clubs during uh -huh. this time. Let me take Bobby's band to his little rehearsal studio. It cost ten dollars an hour there." And we'll work up uh, two or three songs. You come down and listen. And if you don't like what you hear, fine. If you do, you got to give us our project back. Cost you thirty dollars. So <laughs> he agreed. And what he heard when he walked in blew him away. And he said, "You guys are back on the project, and you're producing the monkeys." We could have, you know, gone off and hung our heads. Right. We could have been mad at Donnie. We could have. I said in the book somewhere that. Uh, if I had you know, 
taken that rejection in that way and been bitter and uh, I, I would have just gotten better at being bitter <laughs> that, that would not have taken me to where, where I wanted to go now along with writing and producing the songs how was it working with the monkeys in the studios and and how did that change over time the first time that we worked with the monkeys in the studio was kind of turned out to be a fiasco. It was, it was right at the beginning, went before. Actually, it was the first time that we met all four monkeys. We had seen some of the auditions before this, but they sent the four guys over to put their voices on monkeys' theme so that it could be used uh, as they shot the pilot. Uh-huh. So they showed up on time. They were we were having fun with them in the studio and tried to go to work. And we went in the control room. And they had copies of the song, and they'd heard, you know, they heard the demo of it to learn it from. So we rolled the tape, and we didn't hear anything coming back from the, in the microphone. So we go out there, and they're just still clowning around and having a great time. And so we did this two or three times, and uh, the third time we looked out there, and instead of singing, they were on the floor in like a dog pile having <laughs> a wrestling match. It was crazy. We we were like professionals, and we hadn't seen anything like that before, anybody that we'd worked with. We ended up just dismissing this profession and not get not trying to do anything that day. And uh, I've talked to the guys about it some, you know, in recent days, where they said, well, I didn't remember a lot about it, but it was not surprising because they were being told to, to be this madcap guys and just to be off the wall and spontaneous, and that's what they were being trained for improvisation and they just carried a little too far into, into the studio. So they ended up selling the, pro, the pilot show to NBC and, and RCA and well, the people were the Yardley and Kellogg's and all that uh-huh. uh, with Tommy and me singing, singing the, the lead and then lip syncing in the pilot. Wow. Because when they first came in they didn't know what they were doing. And then as they, the headquarters movement happened, shall we say, and yeah. you were brought back in, and was it was it different to work with them over the, the two years or so? A, a little bit. I don't think any of us knew what we were doing, really. We were all learning on the job. Uh-huh. And, you know, we were pretty much, we were a couple of years older than they were, but we were, we were, leading, we were leading the life that they led, uh-huh. We were at the epicenter of this wonderful 60s uh, cultural revolution and everything that was going on around us. We were all influenced. With, you know, I was at Monterey watching Joplin and Hendrix, and Mickey was there too. And uh, so we were experiencing. We were having basically the same experiences that they were having, and we'd had a little more experience in the studio, and so we were able to guide that through a little bit, but. Uh, Mickey was always very professional right from the beginning. Uh, he was he was a little insecure in the first first few times when we were recording with him. Uh, but Tommy had a good way with him, and he would often take him over. Say, hey, Mick, because you know they they would have been working maybe twelve hours on the set before we would get them in the evening. Right. I mean, Tommy and I would have recorded the whole tracks and put on the background vocals. And then we'd get either Mickey or Davey to come over maybe nine or ten at night. So the guys were exhausted. So Tommy would often, a couple of times, he said, Mickey, let's go. Are you hungry? Let's get a cup of soup across the street at Norm's. 
take him over there and calm him down a little bit, and he'd come back and just nail the song. And uh, it was just that little bit of insecurity he had to get over in the first few sessions, and then that led to some confidence that he would just nail things. And it's just great voice. Davey was the same. He was just he would just come in and sing. Fantastic. Do you think at some point that working with Kirshner was almost like steel sharpening steel? Interesting. Steel sharpening steel. Yeah, I think, you know, we had a lot of respect for Donnie. We, uh, he, he did, it was Donnie who who made lists all the time. We'd see him making these lists and, and formulas, and he, he taught us that part of the business. So, yeah, you can formalize, and you can. This work is probably going to work again. He's the guy who who said, I think the next monkey single should be a girl's name. The title should have a, <laughs> a girl's name in it. Well, that was just one of the things on his list that he'd seen work over and over. Luckily, we got Valerie out of that. So it was great having him there. He was They called him the man with the golden ear, or ears, I'm not sure which that, <laughs> how that goes. <laughs> he was bigger than life. Uh, you know, he had carrying around pockets full of $100 bills that he was handed out to whoever was around. He had built the hottest music publishing firm in America and sold it for multi-millions and stayed on to, to direct it. So you can't argue with, with success. And, you know, he was, he was the one who first signed Tommy and me, so he was a big part of our, of our team. But I think it's great how you summed it up that you became better instead of bitter. Yeah. That is excellent. That is excellent. And, and like I said, these are, these are observations that you don't really make as you're going through life. But that, as I had the time to sit down and review my life in writing this, this book, a lot of this stuff started to pop out. Mm-hmm. We included uh, what we called uh, stepping stones, you know, stepping stones through the potholes of life. Hey, that's a good name for a song. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> And we can get uh, all Revere and the Raiders to cut it. strange because i remember listening to that tune as a as a very young person you think about punk rock and that song's been covered by a lot of punk bands a lot you know i i did a during the writing process i was doing a lot of research and i just looked it up and it was like a page full of i don't know why all i guess after the sex pistols must they must have started it off i don't know but all these punk bands from all over the world have gotten that song for some reason. it also helps that it's easy to play there's an anger to it I suppose. And it's accessible. Yeah. 
And that was one of the coolest things about the whole Monkeys project, even though it was coming from a studio out in L.A., it really did inspire a lot of kids to pick up guitars and drums and people to start penning songs for the first time. You know, that's something that they may never have thought of, just like when the Beatles came on Ed Sullivan, or as we talked about earlier, how Elvis, it was just one of those Wizard of Oz black and white to color moments yeah. where someone said, I can do that. It's true. A lot of people have come up to me over the years saying that, well, that's one of the first songs we learned in my little garage band or whatever. Uh-huh. And I suppose that's the reason. It was, it was the easy four chord progression and uh, it just sounded good. Well, I can tell the Valerie story if you want. Please tell us how Valerie came to be. I kind of started it already with uh, mentioning about Donnie and his, and his formulas, but I was playing clubs, as I mentioned, and and getting in late because uh, we played till 2 in the morning and I'd you know, be, be home, maybe in bed at 4 or something. But I got a- awakened one morning. Tommy and I were sharing a house in the Hollywood Hills and, uh, and Tommy uh, woke me up and he said, get up, get up, we have to we have to go see Donnie. And I said, what are you talking about? I just got to bed, you know. It was like, you know, not 8 or 9 or something. So he, he insisted and he, uh, so I got up and he... Thrust a steaming cup of tea in my face and told me to get in the shower. And he told me uh, that Donnie had called and said that I think the next monkey song should be a girl's name. And Tommy, not missing a beat, being the consummate salesman that he always was, he said, Donnie, I can't believe this, that Bobby and I just wrote a song last night and it has a girl's name in it, in the title. And so, of course, Donnie gets excited and says, could you guys come over, come right over and play it for me. They were running a house up in the in Truesdale Estates, Beverly Hills. We hadn't written a song with a girl's name. We hadn't started a song. So, <laughs> so I'm starting to realize, well, what did you get us into this time, boys? And uh, so I get out of the shower, and, and he, he had promised that we would come over there, I think, at 11 o'clock in the morning and singing this song. So I'm getting dressed. It's now 10 o'clock. They're a half-hour drive across the hills. So jump in the uh, Jaguar, and Tommy gets in the back seat with his guitar, and we start across Mulholland Drive to, to, to play Donnie a song we hadn't written yet. So Tommy's just strumming chords in the back, and he comes up with a little riff, which sounds pretty good, and he says, okay, now let's just throw out some girls' names. So I start throwing out names, and, and, uh, and Betty and... Joyce and Patty and when I got to Valerie he said okay let's work with Valerie so he puts that to the chords and we got Valerie we're pulling up in front of Donnie's now that's all we got some chords and a name so we go in and Donnie says oh, I can't wait to hear it come on in guys sit down in the living room his wife comes in uh, uh, Sheila and she wants to you know she's sitting there to listen as well so Donnie is all ears and waiting for the song to come out so Donnie jumps on the coffee table with his guitar and starts singing playing and singing and I'm I'm singing harmony with him and he sings Valerie I love her Valerie and then there's a little verse that goes in here Donnie we haven't just finished that part but then it goes back that's all we had and Donnie said, that's a smash. Get, get in the studio and cut this quick. <laughs> <laughs> Fake it to make it. <laughs> he 
even the song we ended up with only had, I think, two two line verses that went with that. Yeah, it's a nice production in the studio, but that was our song. Talk about being ready for opportunity. Fake it to make it, right there. <laughs> that is awesome. But, you know that it, what happened was that was right when when Donnie got sacked and the monkeys pulled their coup and said we're taking control and that's another long story. But he got sacked. They now had control of the records, and the new rule was only uh, monkeys produced records would be released. And so, we, since we had already cut that, that song sat on the shelf for 18 months. And then Lester Sill, who took Donnie's position, said uh, to us, that, "You know, we don't have any nothing that sounds like hits to put out. Really, a hit single, and I know Valerie's a hit. So here's the deal, guys: go back in the studio and reproduce it note for note." But don't put your name on it, producer, this time. Oh. And and that's what we did. We recut it, and uh, I think it went to top three or something like that. Wow, awesome. <laughs> Now, you've always been kind of political, and you always tried to do the right thing as far as politics and using your influence in the arts. Uh, before I get to, to talking about the vote thing, I'd like to talk about Last Train to Clarksville. Some people just think it's it's a great song, and, and of course it is, but it's much more than a simple pop song. Is that song about Vietnam or going off to Vietnam? Yeah, it was. Uh, we knew that we couldn't uh, be overt and do an uh, anti-war song. We thought, well, we have an opportunity to do a little bit. Some people will get this, and it's not about, it's not overt anti-war, but it is, let's be a little realistic about these poor kids who are going, been sent over there. And I believe the, yeah, the draft was still in force, so it wasn't like just enlistees. There's this reality that they may not come home. Let's, let's talk about that part of it once in a while, you know. So we snuck it in there knowing that a, a group like the Monkees could never do, you know, much say much more than that, but at least with something to think about in a, in a pop song. Wow. That is an amazing song. Seriously, it's... I cannot speak enough about how great that song is. I mean, even if you're not a Monkees fan, that song is just cross-generational. It's, it's, it's cross-genres. Uh, it it really is an amazing song. Thank you for that. Yeah, well, thanks thanks for your kind words, and uh, I appreciate it. Well, now I'd like to focus on another one of my favorite songs from the '60s. I wonder what she's doing tonight.
close, but we should have been closer. And it's making me feel so sad. But I tell myself I didn't lose her. Cause you can't lose a friend you never had. Come on now. Because a friend won't say it's over. song. I remember riding around the back of a truck, that song blaring from the AM radio. It was, it was a great time to be alive, and that that song was a really big song for you guys. It was. It was our, our biggest hit as artists, and uh, we had that opportunity basically because the Monkees decided to take control of their, their music and, and their productions, and so that left... Uh, left some time back in our uh, in our lives that we could go in and, and do what we always want to do which is be recording artists and we had opportunities then that we had not had before of course because uh-huh. of the hits we've been cutting with them so uh, A&M was kind enough to sign us to a very nice deal and let us go and do what we wanted and once again we were experimenting in the studio who, who what our sound was going to be so uh-huh. it took uh, that first album at least we had a hit out the first album, but it was, I think, in the 30s or something like that, out and about. And then uh, I think it was our second or third record, was, uh, I wonder. And uh, that, that really took us to, to the next level. Absolutely. Now, it, I was watching some clips on YouTube. You wound up lip-syncing I Wonder What She's Doing Tonight quite a lot. We did. I always there's there's this awkward part where the trumpet needs to be played. Yeah. And there's one performance you were on, I believe Herb Albert's show, his his variety show or something like that. It was a uh, it was called Hollywood Palace, and they had oh, different, yes. different celebrities would host each week. Ah, excellent. Did you and Tommy fight over who got to wear the red crushed velvet suit or the green one? <laughs> No, I don't think we traded off. Uh, uh, in, in the early days when I played clubs with my my other partner Barry Richards, sometimes I mean we were so poor we bought these two these two showy club jackets mm-hmm. in two colors, and then we would trade for the next set so it looked like we had we had changes. <laughs> for the blue and then with the gold. 
But no, by the time I was working with Tommy, we didn't have to do that anymore. So uh, I think his was red and mine was blue. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> but we had a, a number of those. But I was looking at that performance, and I was thinking, well, you've got Herb Albert there. They, you guys should have roped him in to do the uh, lip syncing for the the trumpet part. It would have been cool. I don't. I, it probably was discussed, and he probably wouldn't uh, wouldn't agree to lip syncing somebody else's trumpet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's such a great and fun performance, and I love it every time I see it. We will post the link for that in the show notes as well. At this point, you were on quite a few TV shows. We did do a lot of TV. Thank God for TV. In those days, there was a lot of it. American Bandstand, Dick Clark was very kind to us, having not only many Bandstand appearances, but he had a show called uh, uh, Happening, Happening 68, Happening 69. We did that show. Tommy actually did uh, an episode of Where the Action Is. That's when he was a single artist before... Yes. We'd gotten together. But then um, there were things like The Flying Nun, I Dream of Jeannie, and Bewitched. Well, what happened was we signed with uh, with a manager who was phenomenal with what he created for our careers. Mm-hmm. And w- one of the things was our deal was coming up for renewal with Green Gem. So instead of negotiating with the publishing guys, Lester Sill and those guys, he went over to the lot and, and the Columbia Pictures lot and came out with a great deal from them that, uh, that not only re-sign us as writers and producers, but they would give us our own record company so we could release our own records uh, and and make records with others. It was called Voice Out Aquarium Records mm-hmm. and uh, also our own television show that they would d- develop a uh, show around Tommy and I, a sitcom um, for Screen Gems. So because they were... Uh, developing that, they they were putting on us all the Screen Gym shows. They're asking us to guest guest star on all the Screen Gym shows that were running at the time. So we ended up doing a number of acting parts, and that part was really fun. Well, it's odd because uh, you know during the '70s, both the Monkees and those appearances were seen every day somewhere in some city. That's true still going on no yeah and it, it kept you guys in in the eye of the public so mm-hmm. you know thank god for syndication <laughs> yeah yeah you know people walk to me up to me all the time and say oh, i just saw you last night on bewitched or whatever <laughs> it was still going on out there yeah that that particular episode always sticks with me i want to talk about something serious before we move on to the dolan's joints before. It's hard to say. See, that's the reason we didn't, didn't make it. You can't say that. Yeah. <laughs> Jones, Jones voice and is very hard I, I know it is a bit of a tongue twister. <laughs> but but before we get into talking about that which cannot be pronounced, um, yeah. I'd like to talk about the the work that you and Tommy both did with the big part in passing the 26th Amendment, the Let Us Vote campaign. I don't think a lot of people are even aware of what was going on and how important this was. Could you please talk about it? Yeah, we got invited by Joey. Joey Bishop really liked us for some reason. He had a television show that was number two opposite the Johnny Carson Tonight Show. Uh-huh. And he, he would have us on like every, I don't know, four or five weeks, it seemed like. He called one day and uh, 
researchers at the office and told us about this campaign that a group of college students at the University of Pacific in Northern California had uh, had started to get the voting age in America lowered to 18. And he said, uh, I've been supporting this thing on the show, and they're, they've asked me to come up to Stockton where they're doing this love rally, LGV rally. Uh-huh. And I was wondering if you guys want to write a write a theme song for the campaign and uh, come up with me. They're sending a lyric chat down. And so we said, sure, we'll do that. We'll write this today, and <laughs> we'll meet you on Saturday and go to Stockton. So we did, and that led to us being asked to be the national spokespersons for the for the movement, and we we touted it everywhere we went at our concerts, uh, on our uh, on newspaper interviews and our radio interviews, and actually went uh, to Washington, D.C. and walked the halls of Congress and lobbied our senators and representatives. And it got tremendous response, all the politicians. Nobody was against it, and so it worked. But the main, as you were saying, the times were what made it work, I think, because the draft was on, 18-year-olds who were being sent, who were there, uh, either willingly or against their will, uh-huh. and a lot of them didn't come home, and some of them who did come home were never the same. We just didn't think it was right. If they could do that, they should have something to say about their government. Absolutely. You could die for your country, but you couldn't have a say. You couldn't yeah. have a vote. Yeah. So that was that was very gratifying when it passed, and uh, you know, people have talked about it ever since. Some people think, well, that was a terrible idea. They're, they don't know enough about it. <laughs> but I've heard I've heard lately some quite a bit of talk about people saying we should lower the voting age to 16 now. One thing I'd like to point out to people: don't take your freedom for granted, and and I believe you would agree with me on that. Absolutely.
You know, the word oldies isn't a dirty word. Not in my book, anyway. Hey, this is Ghosty. How would you like to listen to a radio show that spins top hits, lost gems, and then some from the glorious years between 1955 and 1972? One that features interviews with the likes of Julie Newmark, John Sebastian, Al Jardine, Mickey Dolenz, Don Wells, David Cassidy, Angela Cartwright, Bill Medley, Ronnie Spector, Connie Stevens, and many more. Well, the Vintage Rockin' Pop Shop is on the air every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on 89.1 WFDU-FM. That's in the uh, New York, New Jersey area. You can also listen to it live online by going to WFDU.FM. But there's an even easier way for you folks who aren't in the New York, New Jersey area and don't want to have to get up at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on a Sunday morning. You can listen to it anytime you want just by clicking the handy links over on our Facebook page. So go on to Facebook. You're probably already on Facebook. Look for the Vintage Rockin' Pop Shop. Like it, live it, love it. And thanks. Uh, well, let's move on to the rebirth, shall we say. Okay. The Dolan's Jones Voice and Heart. Hey, I did it that time. That's good. Let's, let's talk about how that album and project and tour came together. How did that all get started? I got a call from my friend Christian DeWalden, who had just come back from Southeast Asia, and he said, I was in Bangkok, and there's a promoter there who'd like to book the monkeys. And uh-huh. Could you call Mickey and see what's going on? This was 10 years after the Monkeys project had started in 66. This was 76, I believe, maybe 75. Uh-huh. And uh, so I called Mickey. He said, you know, Dave and I have been doing a gig here and there, but uh, Michael does not want to do this anymore. And we haven't heard from Peter. We didn't know where Peter is. So I reported the news. And he said, well, then why don't you and Tommy go out with, uh, with Davy and Mickey? Maybe that would work. So I called back, and we all met uh, the four of us, Dolan's, Jones, Boys and Hartman, <laughs> restaurant that Mickey owned called Carlos and Charlie's. He didn't actually own, wasn't operating the restaurant, but he owned the building on Sunset. And we had a talk about it. And we had so much fun at that lunch that we said, hey, if... Uh, you know, if the demand, if the money is there, you know, definitely would would consider doing that. So in the meantime, while we were waiting for the Southeast Asian tour to uh, get planned and, and booked, another local booker started booking us in Los Angeles. What Mickey used to say was, "Every amusement park known to man." So we <laughs> spent that that year doing uh, doing shows at Jones Jones Boys and Heart, and we got a a record deal at Capitol, and uh, had a couple of albums, and then ended up uh, doing that tour, where we played Bangkok and Taipei and Hong Kong and Singapore and uh, uh, Malaysia, and Kuala, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. And that was really a fun trip, but the, the whole thing was great. We got Keith Allison uh-huh. to be our band director. And, and he's played- no slouch. He's no slouch, and, and he was an old friend, so there, there were five five old friends and three or four new ones. And we didn't have to rehearse. We sang Boys and Heart hits. We sang Monkey hits. We all knew the tunes. Uh, it was just, it was just a, a fun two years.
special that you can find on YouTube that you you fellas all got together and, and did and it was a Dolan's production and it yeah. was basically I remember at the time Shauna and I was a big thing on the local syndication kind mm-hmm. of thing and so you guys were kind of put on usually like a Friday night or a Wednesday night every so often you'd see this special aired the mm-hmm. songs of Dolan's Jones Boyce and Hart and it is a trip. It's funny. <laughs> Do you remember anything about making that uh, special? Oh, sure. Uh, Mickey uh, came up with some shtick and uh, some comic relief, and we did these little skits, and, and Davey came up with some soft shoe steps for us to learn, and uh, uh-huh. Hat and Cane number, and uh, and uh, Tommy and I had done a, a Hat and Cane number uh, nine years earlier with Jaja Gabor in Vegas, when we when we worked with her there. So we kind of fit into it all right. And we did medley of songs that we'd written for other people. And we did, you know, what we do in our show. And uh, it was cool. It was, it was fun to do. And some of the usage of the 
the hit songs, for example, there's one where you stand up and you take your pants off. What <laughs> <laughs> do you remember that? Anything for showbiz. Yeah, I forget which song off the top of my head that you're performing at that point, but you're singing a lead. It's it's I not. I'm, I think I'm singing something's wrong with me, and that's supposed to be the joke. Yes, you're yeah. singing something's wrong with me, which is a great <laughs> song. Seriously, that is a great song all by itself. Thanks. But it's very funny when uh, they, they've done this skit where they're operating on you at one point and then you do something's <laughs> wrong with me and when you stand up to hit the high note, your pants drop <laughs> and there you are. I think you had striped underwear. <laughs> I can't remember. But... <laughs> yeah. There's You yeah, think that that it, show it, will it ever? It's funny every time you see. I haven't seen it for a few years, but I remember even a few years ago. It's, it's the, the longer it goes, the funnier it gets. Absolutely. Do you think that show will ever be released on DVD I don't know. or something? I, saw, I was once in uh, I was once in Cannes, France, and uh, at, a, at a music uh, expo kind of thing, and they were selling copies of it there. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> funny stuff, funny stuff. Yeah. It's it's a very bizarre show to watch because yeah. uh, some of the reinterpretations of the song, there's Mickey doing like a glamour punk version yeah. of uh, one of his songs there, and it's 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 just definitely something folks should check out. And again, we'll put it in the show notes. You've remained friends with the guys and the monkeys, and the boys always sing your ears and Tommy's praises from the stage. What is it like nowadays when you bump into one of them? It's great. You know, uh, Mickey was kind enough to do the forward for my book, mm-hmm. um, Psychedelic Bubblegum. And, uh, that, you know, I just called him and asked him. I didn't know if he would, you know, he's working. So he's got a million projects going. But he said yes immediately, which was very sweet. And he wrote some nice things at the beginning. Well, I and think so Mickey I, is one of those guys who, who does not know how to rest. Yeah. He, he likes to be busy. And he's either in a play or he's producing uh, TV or he's doing a show. If he's not with the monkeys, he's with his sister Coco. Who knows? He's always out there somewhere. Uh-huh. And that's to his credit because uh, the guy, as we said earlier, has a lot of talent and a lot of people still love to see him. Yeah, I believe uh, that we've heard of that fellow that wrote the foreword, Mickey Dolans. We, 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 we might have heard of him at some point. <laughs> Davey, I was, uh, I was good friends with. You know, we, we got to know them the best of the four because we worked in the studio with him more, and then we went out on the road with him for two years. So we became really good friends, and we did, whenever we had a chance to see each other, we would. Uh, Peter, I've seen more lately than, than I did in the early days. And uh, I saw him in last uh, March, I believe, in New York, when he came down to a showing of the... Uh, a documentary they made on Tommy and my, and my career uh-huh. called uh, The Guys Who Wrote Him. And he came and did a Q&A with us on, uh, after the after the showing. And I've talked to him, and he was very kind to uh, promote uh, my book on his on his Facebook page and uh, to uh, do a nice in, uh, endorsement that they put on the 
in the back cover of the book. So I keep in touch with him. Michael, not so much. I did see him at, at Davies uh, Memorial. I think that may be the last time I've seen him. But he was also kind of when they were doing that documentary because uh, I've heard him say in the past that he really didn't like any of the monkey music, uh-huh. except maybe Clarksville. He kind of liked Clarksville. But he he was uh, interviewed for the documentary and, uh, and said some very nice things about us. He said he always, he always uh, thought that we were... Because we we were the West Coast guys, that he thought we were, we were like part of the team, and that we were just always there and part of the monkeys. It was the East Coast guys that he, that he had, he had uh, t- took issue with the the, the Kushner crowd. Yeah, but it's it's kind of nice, I'm sure, when you run into them. You ever like think, wow, we survived all that. We're still here. We do. We do talk like that, and uh, it's such a shame that Davey's not around because another guy who had so much talent and drive to continue going still looked great sounded great and just uh too too bad you know just didn't seem right at his age for to be taken from us but we had those years yeah well we miss him all all of us miss him yeah well in closing what do you hope that fans that buy the book psychedelic bubblegum available at amazon.com and barnes and noble take away from it you know, I hope they enjoy uh, what, uh, you know, we tried to capture that period. You know, it was just a, a wonderful, joyful, fun time in uh, the life that Tommy and I led, and especially in those early days when it was, before it got really hectic and mm-hmm. and ended, uh, uh, or morphed into something else, I should say, but, but the Boys and Heart part ended. Uh, it, uh, I, I, I think that they'll enjoy uh, being there, I, we tried to write it in such a way. My friend uh, uh, Gary Strobel, I spoke to him yesterday, said that he felt like he was walking in my shoes. That well, we had written it, that you could just feel like you were walking down Hollywood Boulevard. You see all the sights and sounds, and that's what we tried to do through the whole storytelling part. And then I hope that they, those who uh, are so inclined, will be inspired by. Some of the uh, some of the stories, some of the stepping stones I mentioned, uh, some of the thoughts of what made it happen, and and uh, the ups and downs, and and uh, some things that might be applied to their own lives. That's what that's what I'm hoping for. And, and uh, if 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 they if you can get one or both of those, I think uh, it'd, it'd be worth the 19 bucks or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Bobby, I, I just want to thank you again for being on Zilch today. And uh, there's a lot of people that may never get a chance to bump into you, whether it be at a convention or something. But, you know, there's a lot of people that, that love you guys. And a lot of people that, you know, you really are the soundtrack of our lives. And I know that that might sound mushy, but it's absolutely the truth. Let's just put it this way. The music of the 20th century would be a lot bleaker had you not been part of it. Well, it's very kind, and, and I, I really appreciate it, Ken, and it's been really fun uh, rehashing it and talking about those days, and I uh, appreciate you also for keeping it alive uh, with Zilch and and uh, all the others who still remember it's It's pretty phenomenal, isn't it? Phenomenal Absolutely. We all survived. This many years later, yeah, that we're, <laughs> we're here. We're all here, <laughs> thank God. Still having fun and joyful and digging it. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, once again, thank you for being on our show, and we'll let you go. Everyone go out there and buy psychedelic bubblegum, 
available at Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and you can go to bobbyhart.com for more information, all the up-to-date stuff, and they can also join your Facebook page. Absolutely. All right, all right um, Ken, thank you so much. It's been fun. All right, and uh, someday I would like you to consider this, but I would really like to sit down and record your thoughts like a commentary track on the Dolan's Jones, <laughs> Dolan's Jones <laughs> Boys and Heart album. Yeah. And, okay. And then, when, and then when we discuss it, we could say, and here's what Bobby had to say about it. Sure. Okay, excellent. Well, we'll set that up sometime. All right, sounds good. Thank you so much. You made uh, you made a bucket list for this show come true today. Oh, good. Well, I'm, I'm glad. I had fun with it, too. All and right. thanks for the promotion. That's very, very kind and helpful. No problem. We'll do anything we can, anytime. Our show is your platform. All right, Ken. Thank you so much. All right. God bless. We'll see you. Take care. Bye. And that's our show. Zilch is an online, nonprofit monkeys audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to the monkeys or any of their members past or present. We are not affiliated with Rhino or Ray Burke. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes and buy it. If you enjoyed the show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying always take some time to monkey around.